The Buddha once said that, or actually said it many times, that this is a path of happiness that leads to the highest happiness. And the highest happiness is peace. And the word in Pali that the Buddha used to describe this quality of happiness is sukha. We've talked about dukkha. And dukkha, from the Pali, literally translated, means a messy space. (laughs) And sukha, literally translated, means a bright space. And he said that sukha is the demeanor, the embodiment of a liberated heart. Now, sukha, this word sukha, again, like many Pali words, it's a very multidimensional word that it's hard to find one English word that fits it completely. Because it covers the range of brightness, of contentment, of an inner sufficiency, of peacefulness, of serenity. And the Buddha speaks about this as a kind of nature, the fabric of a heart that's unbound, an untangled heart. And there's a few lines from the Dhammapada, one of the early, much-loved texts. The Buddha says, So happily we live without hate amongst those who hate. Among people who hate, we live without hate. And so happily we live without misery amongst those in misery. Among people in misery, we live without misery. And so happily we live without ambition amongst those with ambition. Amongst people who are ambitious, we live without ambition. Health is the foremost possession Contentment, the foremost wealth. Trust, the foremost kinship. And nibbana, the foremost happiness. Tasting the flavor of solitude and peace, one becomes free of distress and turmoil, drinking the flavor of dhamma joy. Notice how the Buddha is speaking here of sukha, as happiness, again, as a relational term. It's not speaking about it as an abstracted state. Now, my, my sense of the Buddha is, is that, I think I've mentioned this before, his, his genius in building upon what we already know or building upon what we have already glimpsed in our lives rather than importing concepts or importing teachings that just sound completely alien to us. So in all of our lives, likely, there's been moments where we have glimpsed sukha and happiness. And interesting, the the Buddha often talked about worldly happiness and unworldly happiness. Now, when he speaks about worldly happiness, he's really speaking about episodic happiness. 
And we all have tastes of this, of course, you know, delighting in the well-being of, of others, uh, you know, seeing a beautiful sunset, listening to a wonderful piece of music, times with friends, listening to a, a, an inspiring piece of poetry, moments of creativity. And even, you know, although this is referred to as worldly happiness, of course, they're not moments in any way that we're encouraged to dismiss or somehow being seen as being irrelevant or meaningless or unworthy. So worldly, in this sense, is not a pejorative term. Because these moments where we glimpse that brightening of the heart, that brightening of the mind, they really offer to us a, a glimpse and a taste in those moments of really what it means to, to live our life very fully. In those moments, there, there are, is a genuine sense of, of sufficiency, that there's, there's nothing lacking. And in those moments of happiness, you know, we don't often have the desire to be somewhere else or to have something else being experienced. So those moments of happiness really offer us that glimpse of contentment and ease. But more than that, they offer to us a glimpse of the capacity of our own hearts and minds for sukha. Now, of course, these moments being experiences like all experiences and like all events, they have beginnings and they have endings. They change and they pass away. And then we're asked to meet other moments which are not apparently filled with sukha. You know, moments of loss and disappointment and frustration and difficult conditions. And I think in the aftermath of sukha, you know, it kind of becomes something of a memory, you know, and, and you might hear yourself say, you know, I, I remember when I was really happy. You know, I remember with fondness that moment, you know. I remember when, before all of this came about, when I was really happy. And we, we see that arising very often of, of the longing to kind of recapture those moments, um, these glimpses of sukha, however they come to us, I think really do hold so much potential. They invite us to truly understand the nature of happiness and, in truth, develop our capacity for sukha. When we don't really take up that invitation... Sadly, what happens when we're trying to recapture a long moment, uh, I mean a lost moment, a, a past moment, we, we become very heroic and often disappointed in our endeavors to repeat a memory. And in truth, this is an aspect of craving. And it's a distortion of our longing for happiness when it turns into a kind of want or a need and, and indeed a misdirection and an externalization of happiness, 
where happiness is somehow seen to be implicit in objects or people or events rather than a fruition of the path and rather than a development of our inner capacity and a fruition of the path actually where craving comes to an end. So the Buddha speaks of worldly happiness and he also speaks of non-worldly happiness. Now this non-worldly happiness is not referring to some kind of dissociated state, you know, or, or some meditative, transcendent state. It's, he's not speaking about a kind of happiness that is abstracted from life. But when the Buddha speaks about non-worldly happiness, he is speaking about an inwardly born and inwardly generated sukha or happiness that really knows no reliance upon the world of conditions. So when he speaks about this non-worldly happiness, this inwardly generated sukha, he's not speaking about something that's a state, he's not speaking about something that's episodic, he's not speaking about a quality of happiness that's dependent upon satisfying our wants or our preferences or our likes, but a quality of inwardly generated happiness that shines through all conditions. You know, and I certainly saw this in the early years of my practice and probably was one of the greatest inspirations for me was to see people who were living in absolutely dire and desperate conditions having experienced so much loss and so much pain, and yet who were moving through their lives with truly a radiance and truly a a sense of a tremendous kind of glow of of inner well-being. And when I first encountered that as a rather disgruntled and, you know, disappointed and blaming teenager... um, it just struck me so immediately that these people really knew something I didn't know. Hmm? They really understood something that I hadn't understood. And it is really what the Buddha speaks about when he speaks about a way of being in the world with a quality of sukha that is a fruition of understanding describing it as a sublime peace. And this evening, I just want you to, to invite you to, to take part in a, a little bit of a silent investigation about what beliefs you might hold about happiness. Just taking a moment, just, just to kind of reflect, what do I believe? just now in my life that I need in order to be happy. What do I believe right now in my life that I need to alter or that I need to get rid of or that I need to change in order to be happy? 
And generally, I think when we undertake that kind of reflection, you know, listen to what comes to your mind and how often what comes to our mind is really a list of conditions. I mentioned it the other evening how extremely difficult it would be if someone walked into our lives and said to us, make me happy. How we would experience that as an enormous pressure and impossibility. And yet, in so many ways, don't we find ourselves looking to the world of conditions and saying almost just that, make me happy. Also in that reflection, really, continue just to ask yourself the question, what do you believe about your inner capacity for sukha and for sublime peace? My sense is that these questions really might tell us something about who we believe ourselves to be. Maybe tell us something about what we believe ourselves to be capable of or incapable of, what is possible or impossible. And then if we kind of look back to our day, I think there's something, and and this is a reflection, by the way, to undertake without any embarrassment at all, because you don't have to report this. How today have we actually enacted our beliefs about happiness? Have we found ourselves waiting for some discomfort to be over so we can find peace? Have we found ourselves engaged in desperately trying to modify the conditions of the moment in order to be happy? Have we found ourselves engaging in the if-only ideology in our thoughts? If only I had a different body, if only I had a different life, if only I had a different partner, if only I had a different mind, then I really would be happy. And then I really would be peaceful. Have we ever found ourselves even stepping outside and looking up at the hills, sure that we would be way happier up there than on our walking path? And will we actually see that when, when we're caught in this if-only mind, it, it, it's a kind of agitation. It's a, kind, it's a genuine discontent, isn't it? And sukha really is the end of all agitation. It's very understandable and indeed very human that we want to be happy. We've all had tastes of happiness and we would like some more. We want to feel good. And very often, we equate happiness with feeling good. We don't want to be unhappy. This is also understandable and very human. 
But we equate unhappiness with not feeling good. And in this equation, we make happiness very conditional, dependent on circumstances, dependent on, ha- on feelings, dependent upon the capacity to rearrange the conditions of our lives. And this is where, in that equation, which is often quite unconscious, we become so agitated in relentlessly pursuing the, the world of ideal conditions. And it's good just to sense the flow of that, that the energy of that in ourselves, the, the agitation of wanting, the agitation of aversion and avoidance, the agitation of discontent. Uh, when the Buddha says that this is a path of happiness leading to the highest happiness, I think he's really suggesting there's another, and maybe another way of being. In this world, another way of inhabiting our bodies, another way of inhabiting our lives and our minds and our relationships, another way of participating in the world of conditions are our life. And there is that wonderful Zen saying when a Zen master is asked the secret of his happiness and he answers complete unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable. And this is, of most of us, this is our life. The complete, unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable. And the Buddha talks about the path of happiness leading to the highest happiness. It's very important. He never actually separates the path and the fruition of the path. Is not suggesting that, you know, we need to struggle and suffer now in the service of a future reward of happiness. Instead, there, there is the promise of immediacy, the sukha of the moment, how we pra- in how we practice, in the kinds of efforts we make, the sukha in how we walk our path, the sukha in how we are present in our mind, body, and, and hearts. The sukha and how we are present with each other. So sukha is not about changing the conditions of the world, although there are plenty of conditions in the world, please, that are quite unacceptable and that do ask for the responses of wise effort and compassion and courage. But it's really concerned with changing the conditions of our heart and mind and our willingness to embrace all conditions. In Walt Whitman, it once said, happiness is not in another place, not in, but in this place, not for another hour but for this hour. So happiness is not about pretending. And I I know, I mean, I certainly came from a generation, you know, where you were asked to sort of pretend to be happy even if you were really miserable. You know, you you were asked to sort of pretend that nothing was wrong, even everything was wrong. You know, you were sort of like, (laughs) look how happy I am, you know. 
It was not an uncommon condition, I think, in the life of many women. But this is not about pretending because, you know, life is not emotionally neutral. Of course, there is sadness in the face of loss. There are unwelcome changes. There is so much that is unacceptable in injustice and oppression and racism and all the isms and all the myriad of ways that human beings can inflict misery upon one another and upon our planet. But this is not a denial of peace. Sukha is not about bliss or rapture or exhilaration, and it's not the absence of sorrow, but is within all things that we can discover a sublime peace of a heart unbound, where our hearts can rest in peace and actually be at peace with all things. There's a small quote, it says, My real dwelling has no pillars and no roof either, so rain cannot soak it and wind cannot blow it down. So what does sukha look like as a path and as a practice? Can we approach our retreat and our life with all its moments of joy and sorrow, of frustration and discontent, the lovely and unlovely, as the very place where we learn to cultivate and practice sukha and peace. And what kind of inner shift is actually needed of us? What kind of beliefs about sukha are we asked to relinquish What kind of radical shifts in attitude are asked of us to engage in a path of peace and a path of happiness moment to moment? The first step is obvious. We need to be here. We need to be awake to being here. The possibilities, the chances of discovering inwardly generated peace if we move through our life dissociated, lost in fantasy in a dream, they're probably unlikely. We need to be here with a a quality of willingness with which we meet the lovely and the unlovely. And I think, you know, the Buddha was once asked, you know, why are your nuns so radiant? And he says, because they do not lean backwards into the past, into what has gone by. And because they don't lean forward into the future with what is yet to come. And because they're not lost in preoccupations in the present. And this is why they are so radiant. And went so far as to describe this as the one fortunate attachment. Mm -hmm. The one fortunate attachment of wakefulness in this very present moment and this very life. In a way, this is described more poignantly in a piece I'd like to read you. By a man called Philip Simmons, who was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease in 1993 and died nine years later. He wrote... I stand at the edge of a life made shorter by illness and can't help being pulled out of the present moment into mourning my losses, courting my fears. 
I sigh over my lost prowess as a hula dancer. I fear the day when I will be unable to lift a spoonful of lime jello to my lips. But we all stand at the edge. The present moment in itself is an edge. This evanescent sliver of time between past and future. We're called away from it continually by our earthly pleasures and concerns. Even now you may be thinking it's time for another cup of coffee and one of those blueberry muffins. Seems it's always time to be doing something other than what we're doing at the moment. While reading in your chair, you find yourself thinking about last night's argument with your spouse. You're thinking it's time to rake the leaves, to check your email, to get some sleep. The present moment, like the spotted owl or the sea turtle, has become an endangered species. Yet more and more I find that dwelling in the present moment, in the face of everything that would call us out of it, is our highest spiritual discipline. More boldly, I would say that our very presentness is our salvation. The present moment, entered into fully, is our gateway to eternal life. We are asked to practice, to cultivate sukha, to cultivate peace. It doesn't mean that the thoughts of the past and the future and the preoccupations and the present don't arise. They do appear. Our choice is about whether we become forgetful, whether we lose ourselves in those thoughts and then lose that sense of aliveness and that that wakefulness to what is. Because when the mo- every moment we lose ourselves, we see we don't just lose ourselves in the thoughts of past and future. We don't just lose ourselves in the preoccupations of the present. They come with their measure of fearfulness, of regret, of worry, of apprehension, and of guilt. And then we feel lost. And then the first step in untangling the heart, in practicing peace, is disentangling the tangle, the unbinding of our hearts from forgetfulness and from agitation. Our capacity to see the thoughts like bubbles in a stream, like the leaves blowing in the wind, seeing them arise and pass, like the sounds, like the sensations that appear and fade, It is a practice of learning how to abide in peace and how to abide in the dwelling that has no pillars and no roof either, so rain cannot soak it and wind cannot blow it down. This is a real possibility. Rather than dwelling in the houses of our constructions, And we think about it, how many times in a single day, in a single hour, we are invited to practice (coughs) liberating our hearts. (coughs) Liberating our hearts from agitation. When the Buddha speaks about the world, he's always speaking about the world of experience. And we can think of each moment in our life as something like a blank canvas upon which we're painting our world. 
And, of course, the world we paint is the world we inhabit, and it's the world we call our own. And very often we mistake our constructed worlds for reality. We see how we paint our worlds with our emotions and our moods and our mental states. We hear how we've painted our worlds in our conclusions and our views and our fears and our agitations, our statements of solidity, our statements of reification that we hear in our minds too often. You know, life is miserable. People are greedy. I'm a failure. You know, I'm unworthy. Retreats are grim. It can be so incessant. It can be so incessant. I can think, you know, personally I would love in this life, and I, and I really think that as a present moment practice that I'm devoted to, to imagine a life being free of attached to views. Goodness me, we have enough of them, don't we? To live a life free of attached to views. Because I think sukha has, you know, is linked very strongly to that freedom from being attached to views because our, our attachments to views are like closing the windows in a room, closing the doors in a room. It's like living in, in a darkness. And, and the felt sense of that attachment to views about ourselves, about other people, about the world, of course, it, it, the felt sense of it is, is one of, of agitation, and we feel that in our bodies, and we feel it in our minds, and we feel it in our hearts. And so much of what we're learning to do in the practice in unbinding the heart is learning to open the doors, to cultivate the willingness to be wakeful non-preferentially to be wakeful unconditionally, however it is. And, you know, when you look at what we do here in the practice, really what we're doing is cultivating the conditions of sukha. Conditions indeed, inward conditions, which indeed are, can easily be an endangered species. So what are some of the conditions that we cultivate? What are the inner cultivations that really support sukha? One of them I've spoken about a lot already, solitude, learning sufficiency and aloneness, to love aloneness and inner contentment amidst all things, learning to love stillness rather than franticness, learning to love silence and to treasure moments of non-doing, of learning to unhook from the world, learning to calm the inner sense of anxiety that lead us to believe that we're not connected in some way, that we've been left behind, learning to love being awake, rather than lost in our our fantasies and our impulses and our compulsions. Joseph Campbell once put it, you know, he said, I think what human beings really long for is the experience of being fully alive. 
cultivating the conditions of sukha, and, I, and you have seen this here experientially, we cultivate the conditions of sukha, and the agitations begin to calm. We can begin to understand the roots of agitation and also the roots of sukha. The Buddha framed this path very simply, and actually even framed liberation very simply, as blowing out the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. And this is the nature of a heart unbound, abiding in freedom, whose nature is sukha. Now, greed, hatred, and delusion, I I think these are very big words that maybe we flinch from a little, you know. They sound sound very, very harsh. Yet, in so many ways, they, they can be woven into the fabric of our lives, wanting, not wanting, liking, disliking, being for and against, pursuing and avoiding. And sometimes we don't even know why. Sometimes we don't even know why. Yet all of this frantic activity that can so shape our our lives and our thoughts and our actions causes so much anguish. It has roots too, and it has roots in what we've reflected already. It's roots in a culture of lack. We're looking for happiness, but in places that can't really offer it. The feeling of, I don't have what I need to be happy. I'm not enough. I'm not capable. I'm not adequate to be happy. You really sense in moments of unhappiness and in moments of of pursuing happiness or avoiding unhappiness, how very centralized is the sense of self. We're trying to feed something. And, and you know, that, 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 that centralization of the insufficient self really manifests as a kind of appetite, doesn't it? It just manifests as an appetite. You know, I'm hungry. Not for food. But I want and I lean and I need and I pursue. And, of course, the whole world, you know, our culture so much collaborates in this sense of lack, doesn't it? I mean, you know, you get the messages quite frequently, don't you? You really don't fit the image. You know, you you don't get the messages of, of acceptance, what is. You don't get the message of gracefulness towards imperfection. You know, you don't get the messages of dignity amidst the the... The, the kind of body that gravity has hit, you know, you, you, don't, you, you, just, you just don't get these messages, do you? I mean, my favorite one was picking up a magazine that said, aging is optional. <laughs> it was an ad for a skin cream, by the way. And a lot of times, I think, and this maybe particularly for women, the message of insufficiency is really told to us by others and kind of internalized through our life and through our cultural values, you know, our images of perfection. And sometimes we tell that story to ourselves. 
Dukkha, struggle, suffering, fear, anguish, contractedness is not in this teaching a static state, a lifelong condition. It's a world of experience that's being created and recreated moment to moment whenever we give credibility and authority to the ideology of lack, in which an ideology in which there's such a centralization of the imperfect self. Because that culture of lack, its nature is to, to compel us to look outside of ourselves for what is missing that can be gained, for how to fix and get rid of what is making me unhappy, for what I need to become in order to be happy. This is a delusion that keeps craving going. I love that haiku that says, although I'm in Kyoto when the cuckoo sings, I long to be in Kyoto. The Buddha is a metaphor of fire often that if we keep throwing logs on a burning fire, it's going to burn ever more fiercely. And that if we stop feeding the fire, it will cool, it will burn out. A few years ago, my elderly mother said to me, she said, you know, there's nothing I want anymore. She said, there's nothing I'm looking forward to. And she said, my whole life I've always looked forward to something. And thought how terrible it would be when I don't look forward to something anymore. And then she says, you know what? It's strangely peaceful. (laughs) Sukha describes the nature of a liberated heart, but it's also a verb. Practicing, cultivating, peacemaking, calming, freeing liberating, abiding. And where do we practice sukha? We're actually in the places where it feels furthest from us. In the moments of contractedness or anxiety, aversion, the moments we feel most restless, the the moments when we see our eyes and our ears and our minds prowling the world, looking for something to gratify us or satisfy us or entertain us or distract us. From what? from ourselves, from our own discontent, from our own sense of lack, from our own sense of feeling not enough. We cultivate sukha in the midst of craving and aversion, not outside of it, because these are the moments that ask us first to develop sufficient mindfulness to actually know what's going on, and then to pause and to ask, what is it that we're really not at peace with? And the list can be really long, can't it? If we ask ourselves that, what what is it that we're not at peace with? And and it doesn't take long for the list to start to to fill up, you know. Maybe we're not at peace with the temperature, the pain in my knee, the heartache, the the memory we don't want. The list may, may even feel like too long and endless. And of course it can change day to day and hour to hour and moment to moment, we can wake up with the list of what is wrong. (laughs) You know, that can be our first thoughts in the morning. 
And there is, of course, much, as I've said, that's unacceptable, that needs wise action and compassion, but that's usually not what our list is concerned with. Our list is more concerned with our own discontents. So what does peacemaking really look like in those moments? What what does it mean to be peaceful amidst the imperfect, amidst affliction and adversity and hostility? Can we restrain that first impulse to depart or to fix or to get rid of or to make something else happen? Can we learn to love stillness in those moments? To open our eyes, to inhabit our bodies to inhabit our hearts, really knowing that if peace can't be found where we are with what is, where do we imagine it lies? The Buddha often described nibbana or liberation as the freedom from the compulsions of craving, aversion, and agitation. And we can really learn, I think, to really bring a gentle touch to this moment, to really ask ourselves truly what is lacking. I think it's good for us to develop the habit of stillness, for us us to ask helpful questions, you know, the right questions, not about why did this happen to me or, or, you know, what, what did I do to deserve this, but where did this come from, but to ask the helpful questions. You know, and, and to be able to really acknowledge in, 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 in ourselves that none of us are ever going to be really totally successful in making the world of conditions perfect. Have we got there yet in our lives, and knowing that? Hmm? None of us are going to live forever. Never, none of us are, are, are never going to be exempted from illness or from loss. We know the uncertainty. We know we can't have only wonderful and lovely people and events in our life. This is the human landscape. And peace asks us to look at that landscape very carefully and, and not, to, not to superimpose upon that landscape the sense of it somehow being our fault or because we didn't qualify or because we weren't perfect enough. It's a landscape that invites compassion, not despair or helplessness or anguish, because that's the stuff of which nightmares are made. And I've mentioned that how much great peace lies in the alignment of our hearts with the way things are, in really laying down the arguments with the unarguables. Coming to know an inwardly generated peace and compassion and ease I think it really allows us to touch each moment with kindness and with empathy, appreciation. And to know this peace inwardly is to know what it means to touch the world with peace. There's, I think there's a great generosity that is born of a heart that rests in sukha, a great capacity to care, to give attention, to listen. If discontent is a hunger to get, I think sukha, is a hunger to give. It allows us to be a friend to ourselves and to widen our circle of concern and to be a true friend to others. It's what allows us to befriend all events and experience, even in their imperfection, and somehow to to rest in this life of uncertainty 
in a kind, in something of a fearless way. I just want to end with a poem. I really, I really love this poem. Actually, <laughs> it, it's it's a, it's comes from a book of poetry called "A Little Larger Than the Entire Universe." <laughs> a very humble title by a poet called Fernando Pessoa. It says, beyond the bend in the road, there may be a well and there may be a castle and there may be just one more road or there may be just more road. I don't know and don't ask. As long as I'm on the road that's before the bend, I only look at the road before the bend because the road before the bend is all I can see. It would do me no good to look anywhere else or at what I can't see. Let's pay attention only to where we are. There's enough beauty in being here and not somewhere else. If there are people beyond the bend in the road, let them worry about what's beyond the bend in the road. (laughs) That for them is the road. If we're to arrive there, when we arrive there, we'll know. For now, we only know that we're not there. Here, there's just the road before the bend, and before the bend, There's the road without any bend. (laughs) Take just a a moment quietly together. you for your attention and we have again a walking period before the last group sit and some chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.